0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, December 10th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Trump has been known to tell the truth, but mostly he doesn't. Racking up a documented 3,924 lies, according to Daniel Dale of the Toronto Star. Now, the Washington Post puts his lie count at 6,420 as of this afternoon. Wait, why the difference? Well, the WAPO counts baseless speculation as lies. Also, outrageous claims that he knows nothing about. They will count that as a lie. Let me give you a statement that they counted as a lie that Dale didn't, and you could use that as a measuring stick to see which lie count you like more. I know right now you're going to want to go with the 6,400 one, but let's be methodical about this. So here is a statement. This is Trump talking. I think President Obama would have gone to war very if he had an extra year. He would be in a war right now with North Korea. He told me it was by far, and I'm not knocking him for this. He said it's by far his biggest problem. Look at what we've done. Okay, is that a lie? Is it a lie that he thinks President Obama would be at war with North Korea? It's a ridiculous statement. I don't think that President Obama would be at war. I don't think that there's really any person who studies anything about history of foreign policy who would agree with him on that bonkers supposition. But is it a lie? Anyway, that's the Washington Post counted it as a lie. If you think Yes, perhaps we should count those silly, silly things he says with horrible, horrible international consequences as lies. You would adhere to the WAPOs closing in on 7,000 count. The thing about the expansive definition of a lie is it seems like calling him out on his lies isn't actually corralling him in the lie naughty corner, is it? So what the Washington Post has done is they have introduced a category beyond four Pinocchios. Now, Heretofore, four Pinocchios were the most Pinocchios that a politician could receive. But four Pinocchios seem not to stop the man. We know this. We know that President Trump can be shamed by a certain number of Pinocchios. I mean, there's some number of Pinocchios out there that would put a crimp in his fibbing. I mean, he's obviously susceptible to a Carlo Collati-turned-Disney-movie form of aversion therapy. We just didn't know how many more than four Pinocchios it would take to stop the man. Turns out four was far too few. So the Washington Post has introduced, are you ready, the bottomless Pinocchio. Jiminy Crickets, not the bottomless Pinocchio, yes. Here is Washington Post fact checker, Glenn Kessler. The bottomless Pinocchio is when a politician refuses to drop a claim that it's been fact-checked as three or four Pinocchios keep saying it over and over and over again so that it basically becomes disinformation. The bottomless Pinocchio. I might have gone with the infinite Pinocchio, because bottomless, it's a, it's a weird word, isn't it? In the carnal context, but you guys, at a bachelor party, hey, let's go to this bar, this bottomless bar, Woohoo! that promises the exposure of the naughty bits. Or, if you were to say Bottomless, it can either mean all the naughty bits or no naughty bits at all. A bottomless sex doll. Not very popular, is it? So bottomless can mean both sexed and unsexed. In the world of beverages, were your cup to be bottomless, it could never hold any liquid. You would never have anything to drink if your cup. Had no bottom if it were bottomless. And yet, when a diner wants to connote that the cup of coffee is always full, what word does it use? Also, bottomless. So now we're going to hit Trump with not just an array of Pinocchios or a fusillade of Pinocchios or never ending Pinocchios. We're going to go bottomless. Now, here's the thing about Pinocchios when Pinocchio lies, it obviously sounds like this. And then when he lies more, you got to remember where the last lie ended. You got to start from there. So where does a bottomless, where does that expanding nose of Pinocchio, what does it sound like? Does it go past the range that even dogs and bats and radio telescopes can detect? I still maintain that our solution to the perpetual eddy of disinformation that is the president, that lies, no pun intended, at the ballot box, or perhaps that lies within the Mueller investigation. It doesn't have much to do with the upping of the number of cartoon characters that we use in describing the lies, though I could be wrong because that last statement that I just made was rated four pianos of obviousness falling on my head as dropped from four C-130 transport planes of frustration. Really puts it in context, doesn't it? On the show today, to England, land of fog and emotionally withholding adults for a Brexit decision you won't believe. Yes, you will. But first... An English woman herself who comes to our shores to assess what ails our society. The answer is anxiety. And the assessor is Ruth Whitman. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morph. A couple of weeks ago, I came across an article in the New York Times. Articles? Do people still read articles? Damn it, I do. And it was about how our constant treadmill of trying to get attention for our little acts is one of the many, many ways, one of the many bricks in the wall of frustration and anxiety associated with modernity. I had not heard of the author of this piece, Ruth Whitman, but I assumed she was a very funny perhaps social psychiatrist. Her book, America the Anxious, Why Our Search for Happiness is Driving Us Crazy and How to Find It for Real. Okay. That sounds like one of those books where a established nonfiction writer wades in and tells us some facts. And then I read the book and I said to myself, wait a minute, she might be a humorist who's actually read a lot of studies. I still can't figure it out. So I had her on the show. In fact, here she is. Hello, Ruth. How are you?
1: Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: So are you a funny smart person or a smart, funny person?
1: Oh, well, thank you. I'll I'll take both of them if I can get it. But uh, well, I'll I'll take that as a huge compliment. I'm definitely not a social psychiatrist or whatever it was that you said the first time, but uh, I love that. So, you know, one day maybe. I'm a a journalist and, and a writer.
0: So uh, perhaps the people can hear, Uh, it seems that you come from a land far away, and then you come to America and are writing about America, and what smacks you in the face about America is we're obsessed with, but not particularly good at happiness. Do you think that as, uh, there's a long tradition of this, and it works the other way, like with Mark Twain going to England, but do you think as the English person coming here, you saw things differently than most Americans could?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think as an outsider, you know, it's the narcissism of small differences, isn't it? That it's these these small things. You know, I think if I'd come from Bhutan or something, it would be just it would be quite hard to understand and pass out American culture in the same way.
0: You chose the one country that actually has a gross national happiness quotient.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, by no coincidence. But yeah, so I think c- coming, being an outsider, I think there's enough similarity and enough difference to just say, what on earth is going on here?
0: And so, what was it? Cause if you put your finger on it, it wasn't just uh, the striving and the miserableness. There was there were specific qualities to it.
1: Uh, are you talking about uh, happiness that the obsession? Yes, with yes. Happiness? The quest, yeah. the quest for betterment the quest, and empowerment,
0: yeah. and the journey. Right. Yeah.
1: The journey. So I moved to California from the UK. And I think California is really kind of at the nerve center of this whole tradition, which is and, you know, quite quickly, I realized that, you know, I was meeting lots of different people. And I realized that I was having this same conversation over and over again, which was people kind of almost evangelizing about all the different ways and all the different things they were doing to try and make themselves happier. So whether that was mindfulness or writing in their gratitude journal, positive thinking, self help books, all sorts of things. And it was almost like the way people talk about finding happiness here is kind of like the way people talk about going on a diet. You know, there's not much pleasure involved in it, but it's kind of make me a better person. You know, it's that that quest, that striving.
0: So, I, I mean, I basically define happiness as contentment. I basically, if everything else is going right, you can delude yourself into being content. But it, OK, so as I talk, maybe I'm coming up with a new different definition, something like rational contentment, (laughs) contentment, rational, (laughs) um, content, contentment. Yes. Yes. That's what I'll say. It is. Uh, am I wrong? Do you think?
1: No, I think that's, I think that's as good. I mean, happiness is a very personal individual thing. I mean, I think you know it when you feel it, but it's kind of hard to define, which is partly why all of the academic research on happiness can be a little bit, uh, left field. You know, you, you, kind of, you know, I mean, these grand cohort studies where you analyse a population of, you know, 5,000 people to rate them on a happiness scale between one and 10. Can can feel a little bit against actually what the whole point of happiness is. I mean, it's a little bit joyless, really.
0: Well, I like filling out surveys, but I suppose for most people it is. I like bubble. I like scantrons and bubble sheets. But what about when they do national polls of happiness? I've heard it said and reported that there's just a different definition in Egypt than in Kansas. So they're almost useless. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think I think that's I mean, I think there are things that you can gain from it. But I think overall, yes, people say in the East see happiness in a very different way than we in the West see it. And I think uh, people say in China see happiness as much more of a kind of collective thing that you seek with other people. Whereas I think in America, particularly, is seen as this very individual quest that, you know, it's all about me and my meanness and my myself. So, yeah, we're talking about very different things.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe that's also, okay, is it really that, or is that who, if you were going to market it as something you could make money on, the person who's going to buy it is probably, or the person with maybe the time and the desperation to buy it is most likely the um, single female right if you're you know if you have this huge family and if you're one of these people with the van with the sticker of the the, the mom and the dad and the three kids and the dog on it maybe <laughs> you're not going I to, want get to
1: get s- one of those
0: yeah i don't want to i don't want the van or the kids or the dog but man i want the sticker <laughs>
1: unfortunately i've got the van and the kids but i haven't got the sticker so right maybe that's, where that's right. how i want
0: that's how i want my uh, college education to go you know you, anyone could buy a harvard sticker <laughs> like don't fret getting into harvard <laughs> right. the sticker is a lot cheaper No, yeah, but- exactly that's <laughs> but but in all seriousness, is, the, is it true that the quest for th- the 330 million Americans who feel that quest is mostly of the individual variety, or is the people that you could make most, the most money on by selling them this quest, are are of the demographic where individualism will appeal to them?
1: That's a really, really interesting question. So you're absolutely right that um, the major consumers of self-help in books and podcasts and all the rest of it, is women and especially. Younger women, that's true. It's about eighty percent, and there is a lot of money to be made. I think we have a huge as women appetite for self-flagellation. So we have this sort of belief that if we're not happy, it's somehow our fault, and that plays really well into the self-help narrative. You know, if you just buy this book and do this one thing and write in your gratitude journal and and you know do your mindfulness exercises, then you can be happy. So I think it does appeal. And yeah, of course, you know of the. Um, you know, entire American population, people are seeking happiness in a number of different ways. But I think that individual striving, that kind of idea of a meritocracy where you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work to make yourself happier, I think that is very, very encoded in the DNA of America Mm -hmm. more broadly.
0: Now, since we're talking about America the Anxious and anxious as that thing that gets in the way of happiness, I mean, that's the book. America the Anxious, our search for happiness is driving us crazy. Do you think that's the accurate way to look at it? I think a lot of people look at it this way, that if I could scrape off these bad tendencies, you know, like barnacles from a boat, I'd have this, you know, gleaming hull. I'd have this uh, uh, pleasure craft that, of course, would be happy. That the definition of happiness is getting rid of these uh, two or three negative traits or habits of mind.
1: Right. I think that's true. And I think that this going back to this individualistic thing, which is, you know, I think this idea that we can solve it ourselves, you know, if we just think better thoughts, you know, it's not, you know, make yourself a better life. It's kind of think better thoughts about it, be more positive about it, be more mindful, be in the moment, be, you know, and if we put in all this individual effort, then we can, you know, make ourselves happier. And what we're not doing so much is looking at sort of social problems, social realities, and trying to create a happier, fairer, more just society that, creates the conditions under which people can become happy.
0: I want to ask you about Sheryl Sandberg for a second because you write a little bit about her and I've heard you talk about her in interviews. So in the last couple of weeks there's been a giant backlash to her based on the, uh, what Facebook did with hiring this opposition research firm. And yeah. then as part of the backlash there's this argument well what do we expect? We put too much faith in what Sheryl Sandberg was saying. In fact, I think as much as she's as much as she was once a symbol for a kind of feminism. Now she's become mm. a symbol for either the inherent flaws or the failure of her specific brand of feminism. What do you th- what have you been thinking about Sheryl Sandberg in the last couple of weeks?
1: So that's interesting. I mean, I think one of the things, and you know, lots of people have been saying this, which is like, it's such a classic thing to target the woman. You know, everything goes wrong and let's all blame the woman. So why, right. you know, we're not hearing all this Zuckerberg, you know, and...
0: Kara Swisher has a, has a really good episode of her recode, podcast where, you know, Zuckerberg's the baby and she's the mommy and you can only blame the mommy, clearly.
1: <laughs> you yeah. can only blame the mommy. It's such yeah. a great analogy. Right. And so it's like, I think that's a a classic, you know, women get blamed for things m- way more than men do. But just taking Sheryl Sandberg's message on its merits, I mean, I think the whole lean in argument about feminism has been quite damaging, really. I think this is the idea that, you know, the reason why, I mean, she does a kind of bit of lip service to systemic things in the first chapter of the book but you know it's almost as if they don't exist it's like blah 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 blah. my publishers maybe put this in and then um on we go and it's like if you are more confident and more assertive and you ask for a raise and you do this and you lean in then the payback gap will go then you'll you'll be treated fairly and i think the the idea of it is just such a a mistake and quite damaging really because you know, there are so many systemic and for someone in Sheryl Sandberg's position, really, why is she not targeting the people who actually make the decisions? Here? Why is she targeting the powerless person, which is the female in this situation, and not writing a book for corporations saying, pay your staff equally and fairly, or writing a book for men saying, shut up, you know, lean out not I'd buy we would know, all buy that so 80 yeah, exactly. percent of self-help books <laughs> are bought <laughs>
0: by women and probably another 10 percent right. by gay guys so what's the market for shut right. up
1: <laughs> I know. no one's buying shut up and that's the thing you know there we get back to the argument which is like the people self-help speaks to people who are vulnerable and essentially powerless in some way and um Gives them this idea that they can change things, you know, that it's your personal responsibility to change things, and it's kind of got the dynamic wrong. But I mean, I think Sheryl Sandberg is passing off self-help um, as feminism, and I think that can be quite tricky. I mean, I have heard that Sheryl Sandberg, you know, in her personal life, is a incredibly supportive and a great, um, you know, champion of women and all the rest of it. But I'm so I'm pure. This is not a personal attack on her at all. I don't know her. But this is purely about the message that, you know, she's putting across. And you're right, you know, there's no market for for men. You know, I talked about, um, you know, this stuff about, you know, uh, doing power poses in front of the mirror before a big presentation. I mean, why are we not saying to men, you know, do some capitulation poses in front of the mirror so you can listen better in a meeting? I mean, I think it's this idea that whatever is the male standard is the better standard that we should all be aspiring to.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the same is probably true of Gwyneth Paltrow and a lot of these. Pe- Once you write a self-help book, you become more than the person you are. You become this impossible ideal.
1: And people love to, to take down impossible ideals, don't they? I mean, people love to, to hate on, you know, people who are seen to be um, prominent in the public eye, for sure.
0: Yeah. especially yes. women. Yes. America the Anxious is the name of the book, Why Our Search for Happiness is Driving Us Crazy and How to Find It For Real. That's the book. And she's also the author of this recent New York Times article, Everything is For Sale Now, Even Us. Read it. And Ruth, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And now the spiel. Today in Parliament, the Right Honorable Theresa May announced that an expected vote on Brexit would not be happening. Most everyone in British politics knew that the vote would fail. The question was by how much? 20, 30, maybe even 40. We could survive that. But a huge margin of defeat would mean that Brexit in any way was probably not going to work, would probably mean that Theresa May lost her job, whereas a narrow failure might give her hope and offer some light version of Brexit. Yes, you heard me right. That was the calculation. How much were they to fail by? And, and you think that in American politics, with all the talk of hope and change and mourning in America, that we're too optimistic. Oh no, look at the British with their slogan of, let's lose, but narrowly. Let's lose, but narrowly. I mean, that's the clarion call of the highest order. Prince Hal had the St. Crispin's Day speech. Churchill had blood, sweat, toil, and tears. Theresa May has lose, but, you know, I think maybe we won't lose by that much. How much? Okay, not too much. All right, it's going to be maybe 100. All right, then, let's not vote. As she said, in the house of commons today we shan't fight them on the beach we defer to the invitation to fight them on the landing grounds and as far as in the fields and in the streets let us delay that fight as well quite sensible really but it's not as if the prime minister left the chamber without something i mean she found out about the limits of rhetorical questions
1: does this house want to deliver brexit (laughs)
0: I love the House of Commons. I love the shouting. I love the harumphing. Here's uh, Scottish National Party MP. That's the SNP MP, Christy Blackman. Just note the range of reactions behind her.
1: The events of the past few hours have highlighted that this is a government in a total state of collapse. The
0: Prime Minister has been forced to pull tomorrow's vote in a stunning display of pathetic cowardice. The vote
1: tomorrow night would have shown the will of this House, but this government is focused on saving the Prime Minister's (laughs) job and her party instead of doing
0: what is right for these countries. She is
1: abdicating her responsibility.
0: You heard the here heres but you also heard a couple of yups in there. I didn't hear a true dat, but I did hear the Speaker of the House of Commons himself call the entire ordeal, well, a phrase that should shake any Englishwoman to her core. Deeply discourteous it was discourteous. And the House of Commons doesn't seem particularly courteous by nature. Now, as much as I love the British system of robust debate, I have heard it said that the bombast there maybe gets in the way of progress, that Europe, the EU itself, it's governed much more by consensus. And therefore, things go much smoother in terms of serving the needs of constituents. Yeah, but I gotta say, I like the yelly shouty bits. I actually have a theory that the kind of public disagreement that they engage in in Britain doesn't make politics impossible. It actually serves as, as an outlet, an escape valve, and it allows legislators to say that in public and then get on with things. Here in America, mostly it's my good friend from South Carolina, my good friend from Wisconsin, a kind of forced performance of civility, and then behind the scenes legislation doesn't even get advanced. The U.S. and the U.K. view democracy quite differently, I think. Like in the United States, every president who's ever been elected in my lifetime always uses the word mandate. You could lose the popular vote. That's happened a couple times. You still will claim a mandate. Yet in the U.K., I heard on the BBC, one commentator described it as not a mandate. It means that perhaps you should move houses, but stay in the same neighborhood. For the Brits, I hope they rethink their entire foolish Brexit decision. But if not, I hope they go through with it to minimize harm, but also to decimate conservatives who brought the country to the brink. That's kind of unsatisfying, huh? It didn't end with a bang. We want more out of England. Okay, I will give you another British story that packs more of a wallop. The currently polarizing policing tactic of the ramming of scooterists. To quote The Guardian, the Metropolitan Police Force is engaged in tactical contact. Tactical contact is the purposeful knocking of drivers off their scooters. Quote, a special team called Scorpion drivers have been trained in tactical contact. Policies were drawn up using legal experts to minimize the chances of officers being prosecuted for using the technique which was introduced in October. So far this year, officers have knocked suspects off their mopeds or scooters 63 times, including those who have taken off their helmets. One officer that the Guardian quotes, his name is Sergeant Tony McGovern. He told them last month of tactical contact. I'm going to approximate how I think Sergeant McGovern might speak. It's just a slight nudge. It's controlled. In it, I imagined him adding at the end. In it, no nudge, nudge, nudge. Say no more. And then the New York Times quoted a government official backing this policy. He's the Home Secretary, Sajid Javid. He said, risk assessed tactical contact is exactly what we need. Criminals are not above the law. Yes, which is exactly what makes them criminals. If criminals were above or not even subject to the law, we certainly wouldn't call them criminals, would we? We might call them sergeant or home secretary. Anyway, Theresa May has indicated that the vote on Brexit can come as late as January 21st. She's waiting for some assurances by the EU over the backstop. Oh, yeah, the backstop, that's the kind of fallback plan, which would essentially mean that Northern Ireland operates more like an EU nation and the rest of the UK operates under different rules. It's unacceptable to many members of May's party. But you know what? The EU doesn't really care about the concerns of the members of May's party who loudly rejected the EU. Of course, when it comes to a moped getting run down by a cop, a backstop might be in everyone's interest. And I might advise Theresa May that reluctant Brexiteers within and without her party might just be in need of a a slight nudge, I suppose. The question is, will Theresa May have the political force to deliver the tactical contact necessary to ever win her vote? And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre bien who also have produced a two-person version of Midsummer Night's Dream. It was bottomless in its ambition. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, disdain for bands without bass players like The Doors is bottomless. The Gist, we apologize for saying that thing about The Doors, for implying it about the Prince song, When Doves Cry. That was a baseless accusation. Um, Peru, de Peru, de Peru, and thanks for listening.